Dionysian Revival, Reflections on the Bacchae by Euripides, and William Golding's Lord of the Flies by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 5. I want to begin where we left off, which is with Simon's great victory in the contest with the pagan idol. He sits confronting the pig's head on a stick, which is the Lord of the Flies, which suddenly is now this shrine to the primitive sacred. It's a serious confrontation. He doesn't wave it away. He's very careful in his confrontation with it, whereas uh, somebody like Piggy might think it's an easy thing to dismiss and end up becoming involved in some version of it, as we'll see later on with Ralph. But Simon understands that this is a serious challenge. And so he looks to the sky, that is to say, just as, as Agave does in the Baki, before her head clears. He looks to the sky, and then when he looks down, he keeps his eyes lowered, and then he focuses very narrowly on this thing. And it's a real contest, and the Lord of the Flies says, you're just a, a stupid child. You don't know. There's something more profound going on here. And who are you, anyway? Run back to the beach with the others. Join the, the crowd of the neo-savages that are gathering at the beach and worship me because I'm the one with power and all the rest of it. And Simon, who is not courageous in the conventional sense of being a he-man and all the rest of it, and it's, it's not courage in the traditional sense of courage, but it is courage, of course. And Simon just stays right there with it until he says, pig's head on a stick, and it's the great breakthrough. And there'll be another one in the first chapter we'll look at today. But I want to begin by asking, what's the modern equivalent of that? Of course, there are many modern equivalents of that, and that's one of the problems, of course. I want to start by just talking about a couple of things that, that uh, came in the mail. They're almost identically, the, the size of these two flyers and the color and the slick paper and all the rest of it is almost identical. And I just want to share them with you. The first is something called The Fascinating World of the Apocalypse. And it's announcing a series of seminars, about 25 seminars, beginning uh, this last week. And the seminars are going to explain the end of the world, the coming end of the world, the visions of the apocalypse made simple and understandable, a unique public presentation open to all. And here, uh, a very colorful flyer with the, the seven angels and the four horsemen and the the beast with the seven heads and and clearly this thing is being fulfilled in our day and I might not even totally quibble with that but what I would quibble with of course is the is the theology behind it which is that this that that some uh, great orgy of God's righteous wrath is about to be visited on the offenders and that the innocent there are innocent there are the you know the chosen ones are the are the faithful christians and then there are all those other unwashed masses that have uh, that are in, living in sin they will be blasted away and the and the righteous will be uh will be taken up i thought it was interesting there something like 25 seminars and only about the 13th or 14th seminar only then do you find out when the the second coming is going to happen. The date, God's date, uh, is is then revealed to you. And it's obviously 
going to be pretty soon. That's what makes the seminar compelling. On the other hand, I noticed that that uh, among the things you get when you sign up for the seminar is that you get an imprinted pen and ruler, which gave me an idea. I thought, well, maybe I'll start giving imprinted pens and rulers. Anyway, but but also, once you complete the course, you get a, quote, beautiful diploma suitable for framing. So I'm not sure when the date is for the second coming. Yeah, well, maybe the, maybe the diploma is uh, fireproof or something. I don't know. But in any event, I don't, like I say, one could really scapegoat these things, and I don't want to. But I will bring as part of the evidence here Peter Steinfeld's column today, today's New York Times, Peter Steinfeld, uh, is talking about a lady who uh, insisted that he deal with the uh, the imminent uh, end of the world, and, and uh, she had read this book by Harold Camping, a 72-year-old civil engineer and radio evangelist who has written this great long book in which he takes all the all the numbers in the bible and by by some mystical you know pythagorean christian pythagorean process he has the whole thing figured out figured out god's timetable for everything he multiplies divides you know and subtracts and adds and finally it all comes out and and there you have it and it shows that it's going to happen in september of this year so this so this this woman kept co- contacting Steinfeld, you know, and he said, "I kept saying, well, look, we we religious uh, journalists are very busy people, and we have all these." And then he started thinking, "Well, wait a minute, I have all these other things. Here's the here, here's somebody that tells me that the world is about to end, that God's judgment is about." So anyway, the column is funny, but I, I want to just read to you. What's that? He asked her out for lunch, and they had lunch. Um, but I I want to read one thing, which is quite funny. Seinfeld says, Seinfeld is talking about this man Camping who wrote this book. And in the book, Camping says that although Jesus warned that no one could know the day or the hour when he would return, Mr. Camping points out that this verse doesn't rule out knowing the month and the year. <laughs> so I offer that as a as as an example of the revival of the primitive sacred in our time under Christian auspices. The other one came a few days ago, which is which is much more politically correct, but and much nicer in a way, much more forgiving, or not forgiving, but much more generous, too generous. <laughs> it's called Earth and Sky, a pilgrimage and seminar at the Pacific Beach in Mexico to study the spirit of Huichol shamanism. Now, I don't know much about Huichol shamanism, although I, in my earlier days I shared some of the romanticism, and I even have a Huichol painting over there on the wall behind the tree, and you can see that. Uh, it's uh, If I were to do an analysis of that painting today, it would be a lot different from the one I did casually when I first got it, but in any event, it... it uh, to me, it harkens to a sacrificial event, no doubt. Uh, but uh, Weichol paintings are yarn paintings done under the influence of peyote, which uh, we we uh, North Americans began snapping up about 20 years ago. And in any event, this is a, a seminar by by a uh, American fellow who's uh, who's gone down there and spent some time with the with. Uh, a, sh- a shaman who has now died and his 
wife and his son and so on. And there, the, and this, in case this image you want, you want to bring this image back. This is very gentle. This is all the, I mean the. Uh, The language of this is like this. I'll quote from it. We will, we will participate in ceremony, drumming, practices of shamanic health and healing, explore the rich world of Huicho cosmology, and learn to see our own dreams and visions a little clearer every day. As we, as we participate in the ancient ceremonies of renewal, making our pilgrimage to the ocean, we will learn how to approach places of power. So, you know, Simon and those people needed to know how to approach places of power, but in a different way. Ask for the things we need in our lives. Develop ongoing relationships with the natural world, all of which is a perfectly okay thing to do, I guess. We will perform the sacred dance of the deer to bring power, healing, and joy into our lives and leave with a deeper understanding of the healing power of shamanism and how to incorporate it into our everyday lives. But here's the picture here at the bottom of, of this young North American with mostly North Americans in tow. It cost $1,300 to take this seminar. Uh, on the beach... Having this now, I'm not trying to be too harsh on this. I don't. I'm not. I don't want to be certainly no harsher on this than I am on this on this uh, Christian version of the recrudescence of the primitive sacred. Uh, one has to be a little more generous always with another culture, just because uh, it's fair to critique your own a little more than it is to critique others. But I think they both represent. This, these are all North Americans going down there, by the way. Uh, so they represent some longing for a revival of the primitive sacred. The, the, the flyer here about the apocalypse and the flyer about the Huichol shamanism represent, if you will, the, the kind of idolatry to which Protestant, quote-unquote, and Catholic, quote-unquote, Christianity is given. The Catholic version of idolatry is a kind of... Is a kind of uh, a cultic affair from which the prophetic word is absent. And so you don't have somebody coming in and blowing the whistle and saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? You see, cutting through uh, in some critical and powerful way. And that, to me, would be this, this romanticizing of, uh, of the places of power and all the rest of it. On the other hand, the... Sh the apocalyptic one would be the typical Protestant kind of idolatry. The idolatry of the word, the fetishistic treatment of the textual word from which is excluded a healing and redemptive sacramentality. So just just to sort of place it in the in in a in a Christian orbit, those are the kind of the kind of, there are two ends of the spectrum, but they're the kind of idolatry that we find. Now, the question is, what's in the middle and how can we resist it? And I want to, again, still stay with uh, Simon for a second, because if we look at Simon, he says pig's head on a stick. There's a tendency to think, oh, well, you see, Simon was simply being empirical or rational. He was simply uh, using his senses to observe what is there. Well, the senses he was using to observe what is there are the same senses that human beings have always had, and they haven't always been able to observe that. That's, you know, that's what myth, ritual, superstition, all of that is all about. It's the, it's the, the misrecognition of what Simon recognized is 
the default position in human experience. So the fact that he recognized that it was a pig's head on a stick shouldn't be taken as obvious because most human beings, speaking anthropologically, have not. They have not recognized it. So their empiricism, which in terms of their sense perceptions must have been as keen as Simon's, didn't work for them. And if Simon is possessed of a kind of rationality, there'd be two questions about that rationality. Is it alone sufficient? And where did it come from? Is it the same rationality that one would have found had he just read Plato and Aristotle? Could one go with Plato and Aristotle and have accomplished what Simon accomplished? Or is there another quality to what we call rationality in the modern Western sense? which has more power, more epistemological power, more is more capable of recognizing that that's a pig's head on a stick than would be Platonic or Aristotelian rationality. So those are all kind of questions. So the question is, where did he get that recognizing power, the power to recognize it for what it was? This is what happens to me. I'm re I think about these things, or and then I'm reading other things, and everything's falling to my lap. I'm, I'm very... Uh, I'm very graced that way. I was reading this week, and I saw this footnote to a, a recent thing by Jacques Ellu, the Protestant theologian. And Ellu has written a lot of things over the years about technology and science. He's critical, often critical of technology. And in this footnote, I thought it was interesting, he said the following. He's criticizing Harvey Koch, the theologian and writer. And Cox has recently written, apparently, I don't know anything about this, but recently written about scientific exorcism. These, in other words, science and even the human sciences, sociology, psychology, and so on, uh, they exorcise these superstitions and get them out of our way. And therefore, then we can proceed with the business of our spiritual lives without all that clutter. And Jacques Ellu criticizes uh, Harvey Cox's analysis, and he says this, scientific exorcism, like psychoanalysis, is in fact the very remarkable operation whereby one sweeps the heart and mind, airs it out, and cleanses it. I would not even say it that way, but I mean, that's the best you can say of it, that it would actually do that. So let's assume that it could, and he assumes that it can, and then he says that, and he says, then, once the house is empty and open, seven other demons come in to take the place of the one. Consequently, upon this scientific operation, modern man is much more religious, and here Elu is talking about religion in the anthropological sense, primitive religion. So, modern man is much more religious, much more dependent, much more sacralized than ever before, and more insidiously so. For having used scientific or psychoanalytical exorcisms in order to get rid of superstition. And then Elu says, it is, let us remember, the revelation of the living God that is desacralizing. When God enters the picture, he destroys man's sacred. That is to say, the idolatry. It is true that God secularizes. And to be sure that he opens the door to man's action on secularized nature. Today, when we tend to romanticize nature we forget what enormous accomplishment it was to have understood nature in secular terms. That is to say, 
to have removed the spooks. To be able, as Simon did, to walk into the jungle, maybe a little wary of snakes and animals, but not of spooks. That's a tremendous step forward. And we shouldn't forget that. So Elu, and Elu knows that, and Elu is the great critic of technology. So you would think, well, many critics of technology tend to romanticize nature, but Elu is coming from, an, from the prophetic position. And so he says, but one forgets that it is the word of God which secularizes and not philosophy, science, or technology. That this word of God is independent of our analysis and that it is given in the Bible and in the Incarnation. So I read it. I mean, it just seemed to answer my question I was thinking this week. I mean, I, I had my own opinions, which correspond perfectly to, to Jacques Elouz. That's why I liked what he said. But suddenly it fell right in my lap. I, 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 it's all, I'm, I always feel much better when somebody else has already said it first. It's not because I think I, I arrived at it on my own. The idea that came to me came because I'd read all these books about it. But... Still, it was nice. It fell right into my lap. And I think we have to appreciate that, that when you look at Simon and he says pig's head on a stick, we tend to think, oh, well, he's, he's being empirical and rational and so on. It's not true. He's, something else is in play there. And we'll see later on in the story how difficult it is to maintain his kind of poise in the presence of a manifestation of the primitive sacred and look around the world and ask yourself how easy is it to maintain some kind of poise in the presence of a recrudescence of the primitive sacred. It's not easy. We're not doing that well. We're not doing nearly as well as Simon did. Simon, as you know, went into an epileptic seizure right after he had this contest with, it was kind of the temptation in the wilderness kind of contest with the Lord of the Flies. And then he comes out of this seizure in chapter 9. And he's in the clearing. And he says once again for the second time, earlier on he said, well, we should just have to go to the mountain and find out what that beast at the top of the mountain is. And the beast at the top of the mountain is this pilot that was parachuted onto the island and got hung up in the trees. And his, his parachute blows with the wind and pulls his body back and forth and has everybody spooked. And Simon said, well, we should just go find out. And and uh, everybody else thought that was the most absurd idea. So he's now alone. He has deconstructed the myth of the shrine, the primitive sacred shrine, and now there's just one contest left. And this, as I said last week, this is very much like Milton because Milton saw in Paradise Regained that the victory in the temptation of the wilderness scene was the same thing as the victory of the cross. One was the victory at the level of deconstructing the myth, and the other was the victory at the historical, revelatory level, breaking the power of the mystic machine. So there's something like that here, too. So he has defeated the power of primitive sacred in the presence of the pig, pig's head on a stick, and now he wakes from his, his epileptic seizure, and he says, what else is there to do? And he begins walking, and it says, the trend of the ground led him up. And he finds his way to the place where this, the beast is. Everybody just thinks it's the beast. Simon saw a humped thing suddenly sit up on the top and looked down at him. 
he hid his face and toiled on. Exactly the kind of gesture that accompanied his confrontation with the shrine below. He realizes this is a tremendous power. If he looks at it and sees that sort of dark silhouetted figure moving back and forth, he might lose his courage, as all the rest of them have, and he might go down the hill. So he hid his face and toiled on. That's really, that's fabulous. He, when he got close enough to see this figure, Simon felt his knees smack the rock. I don't think this is overinterpreting because if you go back to what happened to Simon when he faced the pig's head on the stick, the first thing when he saw that, the first thing he did is he looked skyward, just as Agave did in the Baki. And as I said then, I think it's a gesture of getting his orientation from the transcendent, knowing that if he tries to wrestle with this thing on his own resources, he will lose. If he just tries to muster enough rationality or enough kind of hard-headedness or something, he will lose. And so he consults the transcendent, and then he's able to face it. And here, it's another version of that, I think. And that is, he felt his knees smack the rock. Throughout, Simon is always on his knees. Simon really is the mystic. He's also the scientist, as I'm about to show. He's the perfect combination of subjectivity and objectivity. In this story, and this story is not a highly metaphysical story, but in this story, he represents that supreme combination of objectivity and subjectivity about which Pascal uh, wrote so much. I mean, this is remarkable. We don't see that anymore. We don't, it's another one of those great accomplishments of our tradition that we don't recognize. Simon felt his knees smack the rock. He crawled forward, and soon he understood. The tangle of lines showed him the mechanics of this parody. Now, in other words, he's analyzing it, and he sees the mechanics of this parody. He says, look, it's just, here's how it works. There's a line that's twisted around that branch, and it comes over here, and the wind blows and hits the, hits the parachute, and that pulls this arm up, and aha, science. It's the birth of science. It's the birth of physics. And where did it come from? It came from deconstructing the primitive sacred. This goes back to Girard saying, we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science. We invented science because we stopped burning witches. It's exactly that. And the next says, well, let me just say in passing, it says he saw the mechanics of this parody. That means it has to be a parody of something else. And the question we'll have to keep in the back of our minds is, a parody of what? Okay, so then, he sa then it says, so he examined the tangle of lines that showed him the mechanics of the thing. He examined the white nasal bone, the teeth, the colors of corruption. Science. He's able, actually, this is an autopsy. Maybe the first act of science is, the, is someone walking out of the crowd of superstitious people, transfixed by their terror of the primitive sacred, and walking over to the corpse and saying, hmm, looks to me like somebody stuck this poor guy in the head with a rock. You see, something like that. And then noticing that 
if you sit, hit somebody right there in the head, you hit, you cut this artery or something and lots of blood. Or, I mean, I'm making it too campy, really. I think in a very simple way, this is an analysis, which is totally unique to the way we usually think about the history of ideas. But I think it's one that's apropos. But there's even more. It just gets better and better. Every sentence, every sentence in this paragraph is filled with ramifications for the, for the history of what we casually call consciousness in our world. So he notices the teeth and the colors of, of, of corruption. He saw how piteously the layers of rubber and canvas held together the poor body that should be rotting away. So he feels an empathy for this very figure that everybody is down the hill terrified of and recreating the primitive sacred in order to ward off the visitation of this terrible monster. And he's up there seeing this poor thing and feeling pity. And then Simon knelt on all fours and was sick until his stomach was empty. So there's another kind of catharsis. I would say there are three kinds of catharsis that occur at this locale. And one is the primitive catharsis that occurs at the moment of the, the scapegoating violence reaches its crescendo. And the other here is, the, is a kind of physical catharsis that comes when one recognizes the physical horror of what has taken place. This is a little bit different here because, as I said last week, Golding's anthropology was such that he had to drop the corpse in from the sky because he couldn't figure out how it would get there otherwise. But if you allow for that little, that little uh, fluke, you know. So there's that catharsis, the physical catharsis of realizing the horror thing. And then there's the moral catharsis, which is the supreme one. And that's the catharsis that comes, which would have come to Simon had Simon been among the murderers. In addition to throwing up, he would have had to do what Peter did and weep bitterly, or what Paul did and fall to the ground, realizing he was a persecutor. It is still gets better and better. One last sentence. Then he took the lines from the parachute in his hand. He freed them from the rocks and the figure from the wind's indignity. So this whole thing ends with one of the corporal acts of mercy. You see what I mean? It ends by burying the dead. I mean, it's a gesture that corresponds to burying the dead, which is no longer burying the dead in the primitive sense of, you know, the shrine and the da, you know, and all of that. It's, it's the simple act of mercy without any of the sacralizing. Now Simon has deconstructed the second sacrificial shrine, the ultimate one. So now he's free, completely free of it. He's the only person on the island that's now free of it. He turns, he looks down, and he notices that the fire by the platform appeared to be out, or at least making no smoke. Further along the beach, beyond the little river and near the slab of rock, a thin trickle of smoke was climbing into the sky. So, Simon realized, they have shifted the camp away from the beast. 
what's this mean? That means it's becoming institutionalized. They're settling in for a long stay in this in this world of the, the sacred and the profane. As Simon thought this, he turned to the poor broken thing that sat stinking by his side. The beast was harmless and horrible, and the news must reach the others as soon as possible. That summarizes René Girard's career, I think. I mean, it summarizes, in a way, historical Christianity, the Christian revelation. He's been to the mountain. He's seen it for what it is. Nobody else knows. And he realizes that they're down there at this moment reorganizing their lives in terms of the sacred superstition. And he must get down there and break the news to them as quickly as possible. Okay, meanwhile, down on the beach, you have the Jack and his neo-primitives having killed a pig and having a feast. And the purpose of the feast is to get the other kids to come join Jack's tribe. And Jack is presiding over this whole thing as, as a painted idol. He's all painted up as a wild man. And Piggy and Ralph show up hungry. They kind of talk themselves into going in the direction of the smell of the roast pork. And then they show up. As soon as they get there, there's silence when the other kids see them. And then the silence is broken when they make Piggy the laughing stock of everybody. And Golding knows exactly about this because he says, quote, Piggy once more was the center of social derision so that everyone felt cheerful and normal. And then there's a parody on, on the part of Golding's part, a conscious parody of the loaves and fishes. Jack uh, gives everybody their, all the food they want. He, asks, he even asks, has everybody eaten as much as they want? And then... A minute later, he says, give me a drink. It's the opposite, of course, of the Last Supper. And somebody brings him a drink in a shell, and he starts to drink it. And the text says, power lay in the brown swell of his forearm. Authority sat on his shoulder and chattered in his ear like an ape. Now, that's really marvelous, because we think of authority. Often we think leaders. We, we still have this funny thing about the leaders and the led. It just hasn't, we don't, we haven't cut through that quite yet. Uh, the leader is often, I mean, there are leaders, let's not forget, but when you look at some of the leaders that have caused the most havoc in the world, and you look at them in terms of their character, their personality, you think, how could that, how could they be a leader? In this kind of situation, the leader is the one who has a kind of intuitive understanding of where the crowd's going and is seized by the same madness that's seizing everybody else, but seized by a little bit more than everybody else, so picks up on its intentionality a little sooner, and maybe has a gift of art articulation or something, or passion, and is able to give expression to this thing an instant before somebody else in the mob does, and therefore the mob immediately finds its legitimacy in that uh, great harangue that that character just gave, and suddenly bestows all its prestige on him as the leader, and the mob goes charging on its way, 
thinking it has a leader and that there's a difference between the leader and the crowd, and it's not. And Golding's, that's the long-winded way of saying what Golding said in that one sentence. Authority sat on his shoulder and chattered in his ear like an ape. And an ape, you know, is the, is the animal that represents imitation, represents aping. So that's pretty, I just think that's, that's pretty good. That's just what happened to Hitler, you know. So, Jack and Ralph square off. That's the contest. At the political level, the contest is Ralph and Jack. In our world, you could say. In, in the modern world, it's a contest between somebody who's doing what Jack is doing and somebody who's doing what Ralph is doing. And all of us who have any sense in that contest must cheer for Ralph. And we should say, well, I hope, I hope Ralph can do it, you know. But the real contest in the story is a contest between Simon and everybody else. Simon is the only one that's really broken through. He's the only one that really is in a position to understand what's going on. And and we and we that takes nothing away from Ralph, but as we see, Ralph is in it and not outside of it the way Simon was. But in any event, there's a contest going on. So if CNN would show up, you know, they would. we would never hear of Simon. We would only hear of Ralph and, and Jack. And it would be an interesting contest because it's meaningful, but it's not ultimate. So they square off at each other, and immediately they become what Gerard calls doubled. We see it all the time in the mirroring of two people who focus their animosity on one another. And Ralph represents the conch, which is authority, and Jack represents the spear and the hunt and the primitive resurgence. And Ralph says, I'm going to call an assembly and so on. And Jack says, you didn't bring the conch with you, and it wouldn't do you any good if you did because it's, conch doesn't apply to this end of the island. And then the text says, all at once the thunder struck. The conch counts here too, said Ralph, and all over the island. What are you going to do about it, said Jack. How many divisions does the Pope have, kind of thing. What are you going to do about it? One of the shortcomings of this is that this conch, Ralph drug it up out of the lagoon, you know. it's not, There's nothing behind it. And so... When it's time to put up and shut up, what can Ralph do? More importantly is this idea that the conch doesn't apply to this end of the island. The conch represents order and, to some extent, democracy. Everybody can have it to speak in turn and so on. And here's a, here's a voice saying, that's fine, but it doesn't apply to this part of the world. And that, that's a big, a, been a big modern question. Does it apply everywhere or just somewhere? And I think Ralph is right. It applies everywhere. Once you discover it, this is why you have to say biblical revelation is right to say, insist on its universality. It cannot be true and parochial at the same time. It simply cannot be. It's either true for everybody or it's not true. It can't be true for some. 
And there's, some, there's an inevitable universalizing of this idea. Unfortunately, in this story, the conch represents only a kind of political expression of it. But a lot of things have happened in our century, which are really just examples of people saying, I'm sorry, the conch doesn't apply here. The conch being procedural due process, habeas corpus, amnesty international. I'm sorry. You can complicate your political system if you want to, but that doesn't apply here. And Ralph says it applies everywhere. Behind this is the whole problem of the modern crisis. So Jack's response to this universal claim of Ralph's is to start a dance, a primitive dance. And he's going to appeal to, to his strong suit. Ralph's just appealed to his, and now Jack's going to appeal to his. And they start the dance, and Roger becomes the pig. And uh, Now, this is, the, again, the problem of Golding's anthropology, which is human culture begins with the hunt, the hunt is reenacted. Ritual sacrifices are, are examples of the reenacting of the hunt. And sometimes these reenactments get out of hand and human victims happen. And Girard has reversed it. But since Golding is working with that, that anthropological schema, he starts out, they've just, had the pig, they've just killed the pig, now they're going to reenact the killing of the pig, and Roger plays the pig, and, and then it's going to end up in human sacrifice. So... Uh, the hunters took spears and went around Roger and began to circle him, and Roger mimed the terror of the pig, and the little ones ran and jumped on the outside of the circle. Now, here's this. Piggy and Ralph, under the threat of the sky, found themselves eager to take a place in this demented but partly secure society. And this is an admission we have to say. When these things begin to happen, once the approval rating so to speak, of one of these social events, reaches a certain point. Even those who are able to dissent do so very deferentially. They end up on the, we, I should say, end up on the outside of the group. Uh, not on the outside of the group, but on the outside. You see what I mean? On, the, on its, In its outer circle which is what this is. Piggy and Ralph, under the threat of the sky, found themselves eager to take a place in this demented but partly secure society. They were glad to touch the brown backs of the fence that hemmed in the terror and made it governable. Now, this is what this process does. What this process... Ralph is announcing some universal thing, and he's right. But what this process does is that it hems in the terror and makes it governable. And once you can't make, once you can't do that anymore, then you you either have to break the grip of the primitive sacred altogether, or you have to live in an ungovernable world. And all of us are like Piggy and Ralph. Our tendency is to want to, not to be excluded from that group. So now the shouting begins: "Kill the beast! Cut his throat! Spill his blood!" And the and the thing starts to work itself up. The dance gets wilder. But here's Golding's anthropological intuition, so acute, I think. He says, quote, The movement became regular while the chant lost its first superficial excitement and began to beat like a steady pulse. So here's the moment when, and this is, this is a total enigma for us, this is the moment when the carnivalesque prelude 
changes into the sacrificial ritual. And we can't understand this because one has to understand it mimetically. There's no other way of understanding how it could possibly go from the carnivalesque to the sacrificial. In a way, you could say Girard's central accomplishment has been to explain that, how it goes from the carnivalesque to the sacrificial, inevitably because of the process of mimesis. When the carnivalesque begins, it's always ebullient, you know, and it's the bon vivant, it's throw off the old restrictions, and let your hair down, and so on. And if you were to say, well, wait a second, guys, I think we better take a look at this, people would say, good gracious, you are the worst. Why are you spoiling our party, you know, and can't you understand this is just liberation and all the rest of it? We have to be careful. If we're whipping ourselves up into liberation, we're going to be whipped up into something else. And this is what somebody needs to blow the whistle on this before it becomes this. And he's, he's actually seen this moment when the movement became regular while the chant lost its first superficial excitement and began to beat like a steady pulse. What we don't realize is that the Nuremberg rallies began in the cabaret. We have to begin to appreciate that. Nietzsche understood it perfectly well. We have to understand it better ourselves. What he let loose on the world philosophically is coming to pass. So then it says, Roger ceased to be the pig and became a hunter so that the center of the ring yawned emptily. So now he vacates the center. Now what? They, they're chanting, kill the beast, cut his throat, spill his blood. Now, out of the terror rose another desire, thick, urgent, and blind. Here's that moment. The carnivalist has become the sacrificial. And now, because Golding is always having to resort to the deus ex machina because his anthropology is kind of backward, you know. So he's always having to drop somebody in at the right moment, and lo and behold, Simon comes scrambling out of the jungle at exactly that moment and exactly that place it's too easy really but doesn't matter it doesn't matter because he still sees the process suddenly the little ones screamed and blundered about fleeing the edge of the forest and one of them broke the ring and the biggins in his uh, broke the ring of the biggins in his terror him him they cried the circle became a horseshoe the thing was crawling out of the forest. It came darkly, uncertainly. The shrill screaming that rose before the beast was like a pain. The beast stumbled into the horseshoe, and the beast is silent. Kill the beast, cut his throat, spill his blood. The noise was unendurable. Simon was crying out something about a dead man on a hill. Now, can you, can you think of a dead man on a hill? You see, here's where the story, it's the superimposition of this corpse and of the crucifixion. It reminds me of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. He, the stones are flying, and he's essentially telling these people, well, look, you crucified him. Well, it's different here because these boys didn't kill this, this pilot up there, but still in all, I think it's pretty remarkable. He's, you have two things 
in a sense, competing with each other for the final word. You have the crowds shouting, and you have the voice of its victim crying out about a dead man on a hill. And the sticks fell, and the mouth of the new circle crunched and screamed. The beast was on on its knees in the center, its arms folded over its face. It was crying out against the abominable noise, something about a body on a hill. The beast struggled forward, broke the ring, fell over the, the, the steep edge of the rock to the sand by the water. And then, again miraculously, the tide, oh, the tide, is the muses. They're all the, the, the daughters of Namasthani, memory. And they all provide us with memories that are lovely. And in order to do that, they have to take care of the body of the victim. So here comes the, the, the tides come in and they swell and the water turns a little pink and the body is gone. And so that's that. And then it's the day after. It's the morning when the cock crows. And Ralph and Piggy are on the beach together. Piggy and Ralph are just staring out at the sea. At at last, Ralph whispered something. Piggy whispered back. What'd you say? Ralph spoke up. Simon. Piggy said nothing but nodded solemnly. Ralph picks up the conch. Piggy? Huh? That was Simon. You said that before. Piggy's not eager for this conversation. Piggy? Huh? That was murder. You stop it, said Piggy shrilly. What good are you doing talking like that? He jumped to his feet and stood over Ralph. It was dark. There was that that bloody dance. There was lightning and thunder and rain. We were scared. I wasn't scared, said Ralph slowly. I was, I don't know what I was. We were scared, said Piggy excitedly. Anything might have happened. It wasn't what you said. He was gesticulating, searching for a formula. Searching for a formula. And this is what we do. We search for a formula to make sort of recurring acts of sacrificial violence somehow morally palatable. And finally, he happens on one. It was an accident, he said. That's what it was, an accident. His voice shrilled again. Coming in the dark, he hadn't no business crawling like that out of the dark. He was batty. He asked for it. He gesticulated wildly again. It was an accident. It was a fluke. See, that's that's the thing. And from Piggy is the Enlightenment character, you know. And the Enlightenment made it its business not to factor in religion, both primitive and non-primitive. And so it can't understand. So that as soon as we can explain that it's a lot nicer and, you, you know, it's a lot more comfortable to live without wars than with them, we'll stop it. You see what I mean? 
if you can have all the goodies that you want and you can get this and that and you can get you can crank up production and you can have television sets and washers and dryers and you don't have to have wars we'll stop that and that's the enlightenment position so you have to explain why they haven't stopped well it's these quirky accidents i don't know it's just weird the austro-hungarian archduke is assassinated by some wacko and suddenly there you have millions of people dying well i don't know so Piggy and Ralph, are, the subject has come up. And now here it is. Here's modernity for you. Look, Ralph, Piggy glanced around quickly because Sam and Eric were on their way over. Don't let on we was in the dance, not to Sam and Eric. But we were, said Ralph, all of us. Piggy shook his head. Not till last. They never noticed in the dark. Anyway, you said I was only on the outside. So was I, muttered Ralph. I was on the outside, too. Piggy nodded eagerly. And you know what my version of this is? Last week I said, I went to Altamont, you know, and I said, I sat a quarter of a mile away. You know? <laughs> Remember that? It was my version of doing just this. I mean, it's true that I sat a quarter of a mile away. It's true that they came and put the blanket over me and took me down to the rock concert and so on. But the point is that it, w it was a little bit like Piggy. It was be me being a little bit like Piggy, saying, oh, well, I was only on the outside of it, and you see, I, w I didn't really get into it. Which is, I mean, there's truth to that, but there was a little exoneration of myself in doing that too. So I was being like Piggy. I had a little examination of conscience when I read this over this week, and I thought about that. So Piggy nodded eagerly. That's right. We was on the outside. We never done nothing. We, we never seen nothing. And his grammar, you see, is absolutely right. If you, if, uh, grammatically speaking, he's right. <laughs> but, but, um, this, I, but you know, this is what myth, mu, is, comes from the word, the, the root of the word myth is mu, which means to, to close the mouth and close the eyes. We never seen nothing. Sam and Eric arrive, finishing each other's sentences the way they always do, and they're in a mood. They're trying to disidentify with what happened the night before as well. They're, this is all. This is the modern game. The modern game is how to exempt oneself from what we are now recognizing as the moral problem in the world. The sacrificial nature of so much of human history is now hitting us right in the face. We simply try to affiliate with the victims and to disidentify with the victimizers. And we try to exploit anything that we can that will help us do that. And so here comes Sam and Eric. Piggy says, we left early because we were tired. So did we, said Sam and Eric. Very early. We were very tired. <laughs> The air was heavy with unspoken knowledge. Memory of the dance that none of them had attended shook all four boys convulsively. We left early, they said. So here it is. We came late. We were on the outside and we left early. That's the modern world. If we can associate with the victim and show that we really are the descendants of the victim or the heirs, the moral heirs of the victim, then we, we assert these claims. 
I wasn't there. It wasn't me. I don't stand under the judgment of the cross. Somebody else does. I would say all modern ideologies are based on that ruse. The scene shifts back to Jack and his tribe, and he's had one of the boys, Wilfred, whipped for something, for getting out of line. So now the totalitarian nature of Jack's regime is coming into place. And Jack says he and the, the crack hunters are going out to hunt another pig, and he tells the others are going to stay there to be on their guard against any intruders from outside. And one kid says, why should they try to sneak in, chief? <laughs> and this reminds me, imagine Stalin, you know, putting up the barbed wire <laughs> and people scratching their heads saying, well, why should they try to get in? <laughs> First of all, it goes back to this question of Ralph saying the conch applies everywhere and you cannot put up a wall against it. It will break in. So he says, no, they'll try to get in. Jack says, they'll try to get in and they'll spoil things. And he said, also, the beast might try to come in. And this caused a little concern. There was a murmuring, you know, the beast. And they started thinking about what happened last night. Now the beast, he's talking about the beast might try to get in. And Jack says, he came disguised. He may come again. Even though we gave him the head of our kill to eat. So they put the pig's head on a stick to placate the beast. He still may come again, so we have to be careful. And then Stanley, because he doesn't want to challenge the chief, you know, Stanley very meekly and deferentially raises his forearm off the rock. He doesn't really stick it up in the air, keeps his elbow on the rock, raises his forearm. And he says, but didn't we, didn't we, in other words, didn't we kill the beast last night? And Jack says, no, no, how could we kill it? I expect the beast disguised itself, said Stanley. Now, let's stop for a second on this question of he came disguised because it takes us back to the discussion of empiricism. Because if we think that Simon can ward off the primitive sacred simply by an empirical act of noticing that that's a pig's head on a stick, that's not what has happened in human, in human history. All you have to do is think about the idea of possession or the demon disguised as a human being. The idea that the, that the demon, you know, the, the specter, whatever it is, can take over a human body, can disguise itself as a human being, recognizable human being, completely rules out empiricism as a way of recognizing what's going on. Because if you go back to the Middle Ages and there's the old crone that lives next to you, and suddenly the community decides that she's a witch and that the, the devil has inhabited her without changing one hair of her physical features. And then when she screams and, you know, goes hysterical because she's about to be burned at the stake, you realize, oh, see, there you have it. There's the devil, A, becoming hysterical, B, appealing to our pity, knowing that if we give in to that, he'll have us. And, also, and you have a picture of how the empiric an empirical analysis is completely destroyed. You cannot break through it that way. Some other empathy with victims has to be at play in order to override that presumption that the devil can incarnate. And so I, I bring it up because he says, these boys all know Simon well enough to have recognized at some point who it was they were jabbing. But that's all explained away because he was disguised. 
So Ralph and Piggy go back to their little camp on the beach, and they're raided in the middle of the night and by, by Jack and his, his tribe, and they're immediately afraid, first of all, that they're going to take Piggy and do harm to Piggy, and secondly, that they're going to take the conch. When they survey the scene afterwards, they realize that it was Piggy's glasses that they came and took. And Piggy, there's only one lens left of his glasses, you know, and it's used to start fires. Piggy represents the Enlightenment. His glasses represent the sort of technological accomplishment of the West. It's Promethean fire. It's the source of technology, you know. And they came for that. And this goes back to Ralph earlier saying, the conch applies to the whole island, meaning the whole world. And Jack saying, I'm sorry, it only applies to your hemisphere or to your culture world, but not to this one. And now they're anxious because they think, well, they're going to come and take away our conch. And they only take away the eyeglasses, which is the key to technology. And so to me, this interests me because, first of all, you think, for example, what is it that the Chinese dictators want from the West? Do they want the conch or do they want the eyeglasses? Do they want the technology or do they want civil liberties? Do they want Amnesty International? Do they want due process or do they want the technological and economic apparatus? When they get one, they'll get the other one. There's no doubt about it. They don't know. They had not figured that one out yet. They would rather have, you know, the Singapore model if they could get away with it. But the point is, it's remarkable. Ralph is sort of amazed. You mean they just left the conch? They didn't care about it. They just left the conch behind. I've been too hard on Piggy because Piggy is the Enlightenment figure in the novel. And I've said, well, he remains that. And to some extent, he does. He, do, he does remain always within what Paul would call the old anthropos. But nevertheless, there's a, something noble and courageous in a conventional sense of courage about Piggy that comes out only after he has lost his glasses. As long as he still has one lens through which to squint at the world, he stays in that narrow, confining perspective of the Enlightenment. But once it's gone, something else begins to happen to him. Early in chapter 11, we're told, Piggy sat expressionless behind the luminous wall of his myopia. This is the dark night of the soul. This is the beginning of something else. And it's beginning, for one thing, of Piggy's realization of how grave the situation is. Ralph says to Piggy, I'm going to take the conch, and I'm going to go over there and confront Jack and his savages. And Piggy says, I'm going to go too, and I'm going to tell him that he should give me my glasses back simply because it's the right thing to do. And Ralph says to Piggy, you carry the conch. And then it says, Piggy sought in his mind for words to convey his passionate willingness to carry the conch against all odds. And this, Golding is pretty tough on his fellow Englishmen, but this is the English spirit at its best. You see, this is Gallipoli. This is, give me a leader to follow and I'll go up over the hill. I don't care how many machine guns they have. You have to admire this. You see, this is the thing. Piggy sought in his mind for words to convey his passionate willingness to carry the conch against all odds. 
his willing self-sacrifice. It's self-sacrifice in a cause that he, he sees as worthy of all self-sacrifice. He says to Ralph, I don't mind. I'll be glad, Ralph. Only I'll have to be led. I need somebody to lead me. But once there's a leader there, I'll do it. So I take my hat off to Piggy. But I would also say we have to ask ourselves about the question of will here. Because we think of will as an individual thing. And where does Piggy's will come from? His passionate willingness. Does it come from inside him someplace? Is it located in him? I don't think it is. And one of the things I'd like to do is to think a little more about the question of will. Again, another thing that happened on this week was something by uh, Henri de Lubac, who says the following. It is generally conceded that Christianity, quote, inaugurated the struggle against false gods, end quote. But some people would like to take over from it as though it could not complete the task itself. They would like to make philosophy the heir to Christianity. Yet the philosopher, it is said, is, quote, the man who understands and not the man who chooses. In that case, the false gods still have a promising future. In other words, and this is just what Pascal said, when Pascal rejected the God of the philosophers in favor of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he, he, he saw the difference between thinking and choosing. And here Piggy has made a choice that is not an enlightenment act. And he searches within himself for words to express this passionate willingness. In any event, off they go for this confrontation. Eric says, but they'll be painted. You know how it is. The others nodded. They understood only too well the liberation into savagery that the concealing paint brought. This raises another question. They're going to be painted, and that paint is going to give them a certain power that we don't have because we're not painted. In other words, the regression to the primitive sacred allows those who regress to tap into a source of power, which is to say it allows them to override certain moral misgivings. This paint and all of this primitive resurgence allows them to do certain things that we would find morally unacceptable. We would hesitate. We would flinch. But they won't because they have tapped into this other thing. And Eric realizes that. They all realize that. And this puts them, that is to say, Ralph, Piggy, Eric, Sam, and Eric, at a material disadvantage. It puts them at a moral advantage, you see? But that's just it. That's exactly the point. Their moral advantage is paid for by a material or historical or military disadvantage because their opponents have far fewer moral qualms than they do. And so that's what the whole question of paint, I think, is all about. Once they're painted, there's no telling what they'll do. It's like the little sign that says, no fear, you know, which somebody told me now has, there's a line of clothes called no fear. I don't understand that. You see, I see these things and I don't know what's behind them, but so I probably say off the wall remarks about this stuff, but still no fear. What does that mean? It means, uh, if you challenge me, I will stop at nothing to make sure that my honor is not besmirched. 
there are no moral qualms that will prevent me from reestablishing my honor at your expense. See, that's no fear. Well, that's a little bit what the paint does. And Sam and Eric realize it and they say, well, wait a minute. Maybe we should do something ourselves. And Ralph says, we won't be painted because we're not savages. And Sam and Eric looked at each other. All the same, they said. (laughs) And Ralph shouted, no paint. Now, this is very important because this goes back to the question of how much we let the the pagan savagery of the primitive sacred, the resurgence of the primitive sacred, become a model for us. We were talking a few minutes ago about the CIA. You know, There's certain little shady activities that we have to engage in because it's a jungle out there, and our opponents are doing it. This is before the Cold War kind of fizzled out, but it's the same kind of thing. And here's the question of, are we going to mimic the primitives. Now, this is a profound and ancient question because you remember when Pentheus, who was a staunch enemy of Dionysus, when he first laid eyes on Dionysus, he said, so you cut a handsome figure. I'll give you that. Quite tempting. You see, so one begins to see something about this hated enemy and the two the two enemies become doubles in a way, and they begin to mimic each other. Now, this same thing happens to Ralph. He says, no paint, and they go to have their showdown. But watch what happens right as soon as Ralph arrives there. Ralph is standing down below, and up above him is Jack, and then behind Jack, the tribe. And Ralph looks up, and the text says this. Freed by the paint, they had tied back their hair and were more comfortable than Ralph was. Ralph made a resolution to tie his own hair back afterwards. Indeed, he felt like telling them to wait and doing it there and then, but that was impossible. Just as a little touch, you see Pentheus encountering Dionysus. Because the thing that Pentheus noticed about Dionysus was his curls how interesting his hair was. And you have exactly that. It's copying the opponent. And Ralph has recognized vis-a-vis the paint that we must not do that. Because if we do that, then that means no matter who wins, the primitive forces win. Because all we have shown is that we can be as, as primitive as anybody else and that it works and so on. So now Ralph says he's going to call an assembly, and there's silence. And this goes back to the other overriding question in the text, and that is, can we convene a culture without recourse to the sacrificial scenario or not? And Ralph wants to do it on the basis of this conch, which he drug up out of the lagoon. It has no background. He knows nothing about where it came from, what it represents. He just knows that you blow it and it works, and he wants to start a society based on that. So he says, I'm going to call an assembly. The response is another kind of assembly, but not an assembly in a kind of constitutional way, but one in a mimetic way. Roger is up on top. Roger has put a stick under this great boulder as a lever so that he can lean on that thing and the boulder goes. And he's just sitting there kind of toying around with that lever and that rock. Roger took up a small stone 
and flung it between the twins, Sam and Eric. Some source of power began to pulse in Roger's body. And here again, the question of will comes up. What is that power that's pulsing in his body that starts with one little stone? Roger has been throwing stones throughout the story. And now he throws this one little stone. So here's the scene. Ralph says, I'm going to call an assembly. And Roger has a little stone in his hand, and he's going to call one too. And he's going to call one just by throwing that little stone. And the first stone, he who casts the first stone starts an avalanche. It's just like that. Ralph and Jack begin to have this shouting match with each other. Piggy is the one who actually has the conch. So he says, stop it. I have the conch. And there's silence. And then in the silence, zoop, someone was throwing stones. Roger was dropping them, his one hand on the lever. Below him, Ralph was a shock of hair and Piggy a bag of fat. As far as Roger's concerned, it's all now a video game. It's all an air war. He doesn't see any real human beings down there. You say, where does that come from? Some source of power began to pulse in Roger's body. And if you get that source of power to pulse enough, those who are about to be victimized are anathematized by the pulse. And you don't even recognize them. Ralph begins to shout. Piggy begins to shout. Jack begins to shout. They're all yelling and there's a great hubbub. Piggy was still holding the talisman, the conch, the fragile, shining beauty of the shell. The storm of sound beat at them, an incantation of hatred. High overhead, Roger, with a sense of delirious abandonment. Now this pulse that's gone through his body is now at the stage of delirious abandonment. That's what Nietzsche was after. That's the Dionysian crescendo, delirious abandonment. He leaned with all his weight on the lever and the, the boulder goes off the side. The rock struck Piggy a glancing blow from chin to knee. The conch exploded in a thousand white fragments and ceased to exist. Conveniently, Piggy's body falls down onto that blessed beach where the tide comes in regularly to wash away dead bodies. And conveniently, the high tide comes in and the little swirl of pink water, and his body is gone. So once again, that gets taken care of automatically. But here is where we come to the problem. The body of Piggy was gone. This time, the silence was complete. Now last time, the next thing, we have Ralph and Piggy sitting on the beach, and Ralph whispers, Piggy whispers, somebody says Simon, Ralph says murder, and it all comes out. So when, when he says this time, this time is different. This time, the silence was complete. This is an awful moment because if it is complete, then the myth holds and the revelation is dead. Ralph's lips formed a word but no sound came. And Jack announced that the conch is gone. One of the most powerful, no doubt, things in this novel is this next thing that happened. Ralph flees from these savages that are about to chase him around the island, and he finds himself in the presence of the pig's head on a stick. 
he saw that the white face was bone and that the pig's skull grinned at him from, from the top of a stick. He walks slowly into the middle of the clearing and looks steadily at the skull that gleamed as white as ever the conch had done and seemed to jeer at him cynically. So you have a symbolic connection between the conch and the pig's head. And I think it's a recognition of the more ancient origin of that source of authority that the conch represented. And Ralph was able to be completely ignorant of that darker implication of the conch, which we got to when I went to the etymology and we talked about the Homeric staff and the, and the mace and all of that. And we realized that the conch represents something that has violence behind it and sacrifice. But Ralph was able, as a modern, he was able to ignore that, not realize that that was the case. And suddenly now he sees the white shell of the conch and the white bone of the primitive sacred look an awful lot alike. And that's a great breakthrough. But this is the important part. The skull regarded Ralph like one who knows all the answers and won't tell. That's because his lips formed a word. His lips formed a word, but no sound came after Piggy's death. A sick fear and rage swept him. Compare this to Simon. Simon got sick and emptied his stomach when he recognized this. And now what does Ralph do? Ralph, a sick fear and rage swept fiercely. Now remember Simon. Simon knelt and got sick. He took the lines in his hand, freed them from the rocks and the wind's indignity. He examined the parody, you see, and he performed a corporal act of mercy. And now what does Ralph do? Fiercely, he hit at the filthy thing in front of him that bobbed like a toy and came back still grinning into his face. Isn't that powerful? I mean, he sees it and suddenly he realizes, my God, look at this. Here's the flimsy, but still the incarnation of this terrible thing. And he starts wailing away at it. You know, this is like Peter drawing his sword or something. He's going to get rid of it in the way he thinks he can get rid of it. And Simon just deconstructed it, performed a corporal act of mercy on it, and headed down the hill to try to tell everybody. But Ralph is too much in it. And he gets caught up and begins to swing at this thing. And notice when he does, it laughs at him. And you remember in the film version, at least, of Billy Budd, when Claggart, who eggs Billy on and eggs him on, and finally Billy, Billy hits Claggart, kills him, and Claggart dies on the deck of the ship with a smile on his face. And it's exactly that same thing. You try to get rid of it that way. This is the most, most important for us to appreciate. Fiercely, he hit at the filthy thing in front of him that bobbed like a toy and came back still grinning into his face so that he lashed out and cried in loathing. He hit it again, and the skull lay in two pieces, its grin now six feet across. That's what happens if we try to get rid of it that way. Those are the two ways. How are we going to deal with this, Simon's way or Ralph's way? Expelling the sacred. The act of expelling is the quintessential sacred act. So if we try to expel the sacred, it's just Satan casting out Satan. When Ralph smashes the pig's head on the stick, 
it's almost an act of worship in that smashing something that's completely powerless and ridiculous is a waste of time. Who would do it? If it was already demythologized, you wouldn't smash it. You wouldn't have to. Okay, at the very end, Ralph is fleeing from all of these murderous little kids that are, that are going to put his head on a stick. And he comes upon the British officer in the, on the beach, and the British officer thinks, wow, good show, or something. And there's a little banter, and there's some question about, yeah, well, maybe some kids did get hurt on this island. And then there's a little banter, and the officer says, well, it's a lot like Coral Island, isn't it? And that's the novel that Golding is, is trying to critique. And in the novel, the British boys civilize everything in no time flat. It says, Ralph looked at him dumbly. For a moment, he had a fleeting picture of the strange glamour that had once invested the beaches. But the island was scorched up like dead wood. Simon was dead. The tears began to flow and sobs shook him. He gave himself up to them now for the first time on the island, great shuddering spasms of grief that seemed to wrench his whole body. Ralph wept for the end of innocence. So this is another form of catharsis. Part of this catharsis is his realization that he participated in Simon's death. So this is what happens when one hears the cock crow. It's having the myth of innocence vanish. I think the thing I would have a stay with at the very end is the contrast between Simon and Ralph in this story. I think we're in a world where we need Ralphs around because we need somebody, we need those forces and those institutions that can help out. When the Rwandan women and children say, hey, would somebody please come and stop this? We can't exactly say right when you get work. But I think Simon's response his initial response was a corporal act of mercy. Ralph's initial response was a violent repudiation. And I think we live in a world where Ralph's response, however it seems to scratch the itch we have, is going to cause more problems than it solves. And then the next question is, can those most in need of what Simon now knows come to know what he knows? He turned to the poor broken thing that sat stinking by his side. The beast was harmless and horrible, and the news must reach the others as soon as possible. This concludes Dionysian Revival. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.